So this semester, we have been talking about a few different things. We've been talking about anthropology, which is what? Study of man. And then uh, from anthropology, we, w- we went into hamartiology, which is the study of sin. And then now we're moving into soteriology, which is the study of salvation, all right? So man, who we are, uh, and part of who we are is, uh, is infected by sin, and so that's what's wrong with us. And then now, uh, what is being done about what is wrong with us in the doctrine of salvation? And the doctrine of salvation, by the way, will take us all the way into next semester. So next semester, we'll spend uh, our entire uh, semester talking about soteriology as well. But we're kind of beginning it uh, this semester. And, uh, and so uh, next semester in particular, we'll talk about uh, how these things that we've talked about at the end of this semester, how things like atonement and redemption and salvation, how those things are actually applied to our lives. And uh, so that's where we're going. But today we want to talk about the resurrection and ascension of Christ. We've talked about his death. We've talked about what his death accomplishes. That's atonement. Uh, but uh, what we really want to d- kind of uh, enforce today and to solidify today is the idea that death and resurrection go together. You can't talk about the death of Christ without talking about the resurrection of Christ because they're kind of a package deal. We don't get the benefits of his death without the reality of his resurrection. A few years back, uh, I had a buddy who just was asking a bunch of people at my previous church. Uh, I think he asked something like 20 people. He asked them, can you describe the gospel? Can you explain the gospel? And out of those 20 people who kind of went on uh, a little rant about what the gospel is, not one of them mentioned the resurrection. Not one of them mentioned uh, the resurrection. But the resurrection is this thing that when you think about it biblically, when you think about it theologically, it's at the very heart of our faith. How important is the resurrection? Just a few facts uh, about it. It's one of only two miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels. One of only two miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels. Anyone know the other one? Feeding of the 5,000. That's correct. Yeah, the feeding of the 5,000 and the resurrection, the only two miracles that are mentioned in all four Gospels. The resurrection is explicit It's explicitly mentioned in 17 of the 27 books of the New Testament. 17 of the 27 books of the New Testament. The other 10, certainly it's implicit within there. Uh, They only are uh, written as a response to and a result of the resurrection. According to 1 Corinthians 15, this is at the heart of our faith. Uh, faith, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Now I would remind you, brothers, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then listen to what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. If you're asking Paul what is of first importance, what is of utmost importance, he said that Christ died for our sins in, according with, in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So according to 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection is an essential part of what is of first importance to Paul. Romans 10, verse 9, a lot of you are familiar with this passage, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and, you, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This is kind of the essential, the heart of our faith. This is uh, a primary message of the apostles in the book of Acts. If you want to kind of summarize the book of Acts and what the apostles are preaching, it's two things. It's to repent in light of the resurrection. If you go and you read through all of the different sermons in, uh, in the book of Acts, the one connecting theme, the kind of the one thread that kind of threads them all together is the idea of the resurrection. It's in uh, the Pentecost message that Peter preaches, whatever he preaches at the portico, whenever he's uh, brought in front of the uh, Sanhedrin, the council, a summary of the apostolic message in chapter 4 why Paul claims to be on trial. If you remember, he screams out, I'm on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. So it was the resurrection that really distinguished the apostolic message. Hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people had been crucified before. What distinguished Christianity 
And what distinguished Christ's crucifixion was the reality of the resurrection that went after it. And so uh, this is not some sort of tangential, tangential uh, reality. This is not some sort of peripheral or tertiary sort of thing. This is at the very heart of our faith. And so this is two big ideas that I want you to get today. If you get anything from what we talk about this morning, here are the two things that I want you to get. First, that the resurrection is a really, 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 really big deal. If you miss out on the resurrection, your understanding of the gospel is going to suffer. So the resurrection is a really big deal. That's the first thing. And uh, if you don't grasp it, your grasp of the gospel will suffer. And so speaking of uh, the gospel, if the gospel is the story, as we talk about here at Parkway a lot, the gospel is the story of the king and his kingdom, then what you can think of is kind of the resurrection is the coronation ceremony. The resurrection is the coronation ceremony. So imagine, if you will, that Christ's death and burial, Christ's death and burial, it's like him kneeling down into the dirt. And then he receives his crown and he's being raised. And what does the king do after he is, uh, receives his crown and he is raised? He goes and he sits on his throne. That's what the resurrection is, that raising up and the ascension is that sort of sitting on his throne. And so that's the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. It's uh, this sort of coronation ceremony. That's the imagery of his resurrection and ascension. So I want to begin just by reading one of the most uh, extended discourses on resurrection in the New Testament. And so you have it in your notes. If you want to follow along there, it's uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 28. And just want to posture our hearts to kind of receive this morning and uh, to kind of relish uh, the, uh, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we'll begin in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits... Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. So you see this kingdom imagery there uh, of this coronation ceremony. When Christ is resurrected, He sits. He sits and waits for the day when He will judge His enemy. You also see this parallel between this text and what we've been talking about in Romans 5 and 6, the uh, sort of two spheres, the two realms, the two dominions, uh, being uh, those in Adam and those in uh, Christ. And so I just wanted to begin by just reading that passage. And, uh, and then what I want to do now is just kind of walk through how this doctrine develops uh, over time. And so uh, this is called kind of just redemptive history, looking at the flow of the biblical text. How do we see this idea of resurrection uh, sort of unwound? So I want to give you an illustration. Anybody remember those magic eye puzzles? Anybody remember those? It's those puzzles that uh, you kind of stare at, and then after you stare at it uh, at a while, it's like, oh, a goose or a boat or whatever it is. You stare at it long enough, and maybe you stare at it, and you never see the goose. Uh, or the boat, or whatever it is. But uh, eventually, kind of this picture emerges, and then every time you look at it, you see it. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I see a lot of blank uh, stares, kind of like you're looking at a magic eye right now. 
uh, <laughs> but anyway, that's kind of the uh, analogy. Uh, that throughout the Old Testament, it's kind of like you're looking at this and you don't quite see it. It's there, it's there, but you don't quite see it. Then over the uh, intertestamental period, as people are just focusing upon it, then the, the, the picture begins to emerge. And then with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden you get it. And now when you go back and read the Old Testament, you can see it. Uh, but whereas uh, previously it was a little bit uh, unclear. So, I want to ask you a question. If I were to take everybody in this room and I were to line them up on stage and then we were to just focus a kind of spotlight on people and, uh, and then all you could see is their shadows, how many of them do you think that you could actually identify just on the basis of their shadows? Probably not all that many, right? Because shadows aren't that clear. That's sort of the illustration that we've used over and over and over between the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is a testament, is a covenant, uh, is a book that is filled with shadows. They're shadows that are pointing towards something that is substance, but the substance is always going to be clearer. If I pull uh, Dave Young and Mark Landers up on stage, you're going to be able to tell the difference between the two. Whereas when it comes to shadows, you can't tell the difference between uh, people's shadows uh, oftentimes. And so the, the Bible is not something that's given as sort of a static book. It's not like uh, all of a sudden at a certain point in time, God hands down this bound leather book written in English to his people. Uh, instead, he uh, progressively reveals it over time. He reveals a certain uh, aspect of it to the people of, uh, uh, of Israel in Moses' day. There's more that's revealed uh, through uh, the kings and uh, judges, period. There's more that's revealed through the prophets and on and on we could go. This is not a static book that's given at one particular uh, time. This is something that is progressive. And so the doctrine of uh, resurrection is something that is uh, progressive as well. It's a shadow in the Old Testament that's progressively revealed, and we see the substance emerge with Jesus Christ. And so when you're looking at the Old Testament, when you're looking at the Old Testament, you need to realize that by and large, Israel was primarily focused not on death or even what comes after death, but on the present life. When an author of Scripture does refer to, uh, to death, he typically speaks of Sheol, which is uh, kind of a place of shade is what it means, a, a place of shade, a place of uh, shade and a place of water. Bear in mind, we've talked about this a number of times before uh, in our sermon last week in particular, that water is this sort of uh, idea of chaos and, uh, and judgment. So Sheol, uh, the uh, sort of just the resting place after death, is, this, is seen of a place of shade. It's a place that's uh, kind of dark and dim and unlit, and then also it's a place of water, of chaos, uh, of uh, pointing to kind of the uncertainty uh, with which Israel uh, sort of viewed the afterlife. And, uh, and so that's, uh, that's in general sort of the hope. There's not a lot of light pointing toward any sort of hope of future resurrection, but eventually over time you get, begin to see these sort of texts that point toward a hope of life after death. I put a couple of them uh, in, uh, in uh, your notes here. Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy ones see corruption. By the way, this is referenced in Acts 2 and Acts 13 and, and specifically applied to Christ. So though it's David here in Psalm 16 that's speaking, we see that ultimately it's reference uh, to, uh, to Jesus, that Jesus is the one who would not see uh, corruption. There's a sense in which David sees corruption. Uh, but because Jesus doesn't see corruption, because Jesus is resurrected, there's also a hope that this will apply to David as well and to us uh, as well. We will not know ultimate corruption. Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was uh, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong uh, his days. So these are a few of the texts. Uh, Hosea 6, Hosea 13, Ezekiel 37, Daniel 12, Isaiah 25. Uh, we could go on and on with, uh, with some others. But by and large, you see there's not a, uh, an explicit sort of clear uh, consensus hope for resurrection that you see in, uh, in the Old Testament. It's much more... Uh, ambiguous. For the most part, Israelites uh, held to the inability of death to ultimately separate God from His beloved. 
But how that reunion would take place or in what state it would, it would occur was uh, never really explicit. And so I think this quote from uh, a dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels uh, is helpful. It says, The Old Testament stresses the presence of God in the daily affairs of this life and tends thereby to ignore the larger issue of life after death. Nevertheless, it is not entirely silent, and several passages demonstrate that at a later period in Israel's history, a belief in resurrection became more explicit. All right, so that's the Old Testament conception of death. It's kind of a, as Sheol was seen as a place of shade, so Israel's understanding of life after death was kind of shady, uh, lacked clarity. In the intertestamental period, you see some development. Intertestamental period, 400 or so years of prophetic silence. There's no prophets in Israel. Uh, the uh, Israel and uh, the northern and the southern kingdom have both been exiled. Then they uh, eventually return from exile. So it's a time of prophetic silence. But it's also a time of sort of doctrinal significance as uh, these uh, sects uh, like uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are going to uh, develop. And, uh, and as they're developing, they are thinking about this question. They're thinking, why did we get exiled? And the reason that they get exiled is because they were not faithful to the law. So they decided that they are going to be passionate pursuers of the law. So what are they doing? They are spending their time getting a Ph.D. in Old Testament law. And as they reflect upon the law over and over and over again, they begin to see these sort of connections that exist there in the Old Testament for the idea of life after death and uh, and resurrection. As they kind of stare at that magic eye, if you will, they begin to see this sort of shape uh, taking focus, and there becomes a much clearer expectation of resurrection so that whenever you get to the time of the New Testament, uh, by and large, most common people uh, and certainly most of the, the various religious groups, with the exception of the Sadducees, most common people and most religious groups there in Israel would have uh, expected some sort of resurrection, although they expected it to come at the end of time. This is part of the glory of Christ's uh, resurrection is that it's an in-breaking. Uh, what is uh, expected to only come at the end has actually come now, so the end has actually already begun, which is why the Bible will say that we are currently in the last days. Jesus' uh, life and death and resurrection kind of triggers, uh, inaugurates the beginning of, uh, of the end. And so uh, this is uh, the Old Testament, or the New Testament expectation becomes clearer and clearer. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, he seems to teach something that's really strange to Israel's ears. They're expecting resurrection at the end. Jesus is speaking of his own resurrection. And, uh, and so we see this in a number of places. Uh, one of the most uh, well-known is the triple passion prediction in Mark. The book of Mark has Jesus three different times predicting uh, his uh, death and resurrection. What's really important about this is this becomes a pivot point in the book of Mark. Uh, if you were with us a couple of years ago, we preached through the book of uh, Mark. If you weren't with us, you're welcome to go back and listen to that audio online. But uh, one of the things that we talked about over and over and over is this idea of messianic secret in the book of Mark, that, uh, that Jesus is, uh, is not coming forth and standing there and saying, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. Uh, he's not doing that. He's doing the works of the Christ. He's doing the works of the Messiah. But by and large, whenever someone wants to confess that he's the Messiah, Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. He keeps it a secret. But we see this pivot point in, uh, in Mark 9, 9. Uh, As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what he had seen. Here's the, the big statement. Until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And we see, uh, so with this triple uh, passion prediction in Mark 8, in Mark 9, in Mark 10, Jesus is going to predict his death. And he's also going to predict his resurrection. And after this, uh, this uh, passion prediction and resurrection prediction, all of a sudden now, Jesus no longer tells people, don't tell people who I am. Uh, why? What's the reason for that? What's the reason for the secret? And then the reason uh, why he uh, all of a sudden releases people to tell the secret? Because now he's clarified what his mission is. You see, Israel's expectation of the Messiah was that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to destroy uh, all the oppressors. He was going to destroy Israel's enemies. And Jesus wants them to understand, no, that's not what I'm doing in my first coming. 
In my first coming, I'm destroying death. Eventually, I will come and I will judge uh, all of my enemies. But in my first coming, that's not what I'm doing. So you have a misconception of what the Messiah is. So I don't want you to call me Messiah until you understand what the Messiah is going to do. And what I'm going to do is not first and foremost deliver you from Rome. I'm going to first and foremost deliver you from sin. I'm going to first and foremost deliver you from Satan. I'm going to first and foremost deliver you uh, from death. And so until you understand who the Messiah is, and until you understand what the Messiah's mission is, I'm not going to let you call me. I'm not going to let you tell other people that I am the Messiah. So you have this triple passion uh, prediction in, uh, in Mark. You have other passages, Mark 14, 28. And Jesus says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee, John 2, 19 through 21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Um, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. You have the sign of Jonah where it talks about uh, as Jonah was in the, the belly uh, of the, the fish for three days, uh, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. Uh, so again, you have resurrection. You have not only Jesus' predictions, but you actually have reference to the resurrection, his actual resurrection in all four Gospels. Uh, at the end of Matthew, at the end of Mark, Luke, and John, you have an explicit mention uh, explicitly mentioned in uh, 17 of the, uh, the other epistles, and then implicit in all of the others. So this is kind of how the doctrine is going to develop uh, throughout the Scriptures. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to give you five truths about the resurrection. I had like nine truths about the resurrection, and I realized I'm going to run out of time with five, and, uh, and so I needed to cut some. So we have five truths about the resurrection. Sorry, it's not a perfect Bible number, like three or seven or something like that. I split the difference. So first one, the first thing you need to know about the resurrection, not talking about resurrection in general, by the way. We'll talk about that as we get into eschatology, uh, which is the study of the end times. We're talking specifically about the resurrection of Christ. So five truths that you need to know about resurrection. The first one, the resurrection proves that God's original creational intent is fulfilled the resurrection proves that God's original creational intent is fulfilled. Depending upon who you're arguing with, who you're talking with, who uh, you're discussing life after death or whatever it might be, uh, you're going to have a wide range of opinion. If you're talking to someone who is just an unabashed sort of atheist, they might hold to some form of just annihilation. We just sort of cease to exist. If you're talking to some Hindus or Buddhists, they might uh, hold to reincarnation uh, some Hindus and Buddhists don't hold to reincarnation. Instead, they hold to dissolution. You just kind of dissolve or pantheism. You become kind of a one, you become one with the universe somehow, kind of like in uh, Avatar or something like that. Lots of Christians, though, that you discuss don't actually have a biblical depiction of life after death. Lots of Christians that you have this conversation with actually hold to sort of heaven as being the final destination. Whereas heaven is not the final destination for us. Heaven is sort of a, a, a stopping point. It's kind of a layover uh, on our ultimate journey back to this uh, recreated uh, earth. That uh, ultimately heaven and earth are going to reconnect and, and we will live in resurrected bodies on the uh, new earth. So we tend to think just naturally as Christians uh, in this particular context that we've grown up in, we, we might have this conception of heaven as being sort of this, this place where it's just nonstop elevator music. And these little angels with diapers that are strumming harps or whatever are doing their thing. And we're kind of immaterial. We don't really have a body. We're just kind of a soul that's floating around or would it, uh, whatever it might be. Even some of our great songs seem to celebrate the idea that heaven really is our, our eternal state. And, uh, and so uh, I will uh, read this and tell me if you can name this song. Bless all thy dear children in thy tender care and take us to heaven to live with thee there. Anybody know what that is? Away in a manger, yeah. Or a great song. I love this song. Uh, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. How great, how great thou art, actually. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. And so we have this sort of idea in our minds, perhaps, 
that our ultimate destination, our final destination is heaven. That is not the biblical uh, picture. And so resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, is going to help correct this sort of idea that our hope is going to be immaterial. It's almost like Jesus or or it's almost like uh, God's plans were thwarted. He planned to create a world. He wanted His glory to extend throughout the world. Uh, And then sin came into the world, and so what he does is he rescues us, and he takes us to heaven, and the world just kind of, it it was just, it's messed up. It just kind of sits. It's like Chernobyl or something like that. It's just this sort of uh, isolated, sort of uh, uh, completely empty reality. No, that's not the biblical picture. God doesn't lose. God doesn't lose. He recreates uh, the earth. And so the problem with all of these sorts of ideas that we go and we live in heaven forever is that they kind of present this sort of idea that our hope is an escape from creation. They seem to deny the original uh, creation claim that creation is good or even very good, as Genesis would say, or that it will be again, that it will one day be good uh, again. They seem to teach that God failed in His desire to create uh, a, uh, a created kingdom. And, uh, but biblically, we see God didn't create a physical material world and physical bodily people in order to just sort of abandon His plans halfway through. So the, the resurrection is going to demonstrate the reality that God's plan is not thwarted. His glory will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. The entire earth will look like Eden, which is the hope and uh, the entire earth will be subdued, and humans will rule and reign as His image bearers, as they were originally created to do. Again, God's plans are not thwarted. So the resurrection finishes what the incarnation begins in revealing how creation will will be restored and renewed and recreated it's the beginning of uh, what N.T. Wright, who is one of the leading scholars on this, we've talked about this before, N.T. Wright, a little bit shady when it comes to justification, don't really love him on that, but when it comes to resurrection, he is probably the best scholar in the world. Read anything you can by N.T. Wright on the subject of uh, resurrection, and he says that the resurrection is not life after death, it's life after life after death. When you die, you go to heaven. That's not your ultimate hope, though. Your ultimate hope is resurrection on a uh, new earth. So it's life after, life after death. I think that's a great phrase by uh, N.T. Wright. By the way, the resurrection is also going to show us that Jesus is eternally linked to humanity. This is something that I think is also kind of misunderstood in a number of our churches. Uh, And so if you read our statement of faith, we make very explicit here that we believe that Jesus is fully God and He is fully human. A lot of people are really okay with the first part. Jesus is fully God, but they want to say, they want to use a past tense verb when it comes to uh, his humanity. They want to say Jesus is fully God and was fully human. But what we see here in the resurrection is that those things are eternally linked. Those things are eternally linked. Some people think that Jesus was God, he gave up his deity, and then he became a man, and then he gives up his humanity and becomes God again. That's not the picture at all. Jesus, the the second person of the Trinity, has always existed. He's eternally existed. He takes on humanity while remaining divine, and uh, and then in His resurrection, He remains fully human and uh, fully uh, divine, which is how we see this sort of promise that a son of David would sit on the throne forever, because He will always be a son of David. He will always be uh, human. Uh, is fulfilled. The promise of mankind ruling and reigning over creation is fulfilled because Jesus is a man, and how He continues to make intercession as our priest and mediation, and on and on we could go with uh, with these things. So that's the first thing that uh, uh, that the resurrection is going to help us see this sort of fulfillment of God's original creational uh, plans. The second thing, the second truth about the resurrection is that Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. Now, first fruits is a word you don't encounter anywhere except for church. You didn't go to the grocery store today and say, I want some first fruits or something like that. So what, is, what does first fruits mean? It means first fruits. There you go. Thank you. Uh, Captain Obvious. All right. First fruits. Yeah. First fruits are the first part of a harvest. So uh, you, you have a, a harvest. You take the first part of it and you dedicate it uh, to the Lord. And, uh, and so if there is a first fruits... 
then by implication, there are also second fruits and third fruits and fourth fruits and all of those uh, sorts of things. There are other fruits to come. This is the language that's used in 1 Corinthians 15. We read it earlier. But, if, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So this means two things. There's two implications of Jesus being the first fruits. First one, that Jesus was the first to be resurrected. And the second one, that others will be resurrected. Those are the two things to get about Jesus being the first fruits, that Jesus was the first and that there will be others. So let's talk first about Jesus being the first. Others were raised from the dead. You see that uh, in uh, the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Lazarus being one of the uh, most um, uh, common examples, Uh, the son of the Zarephath widow, the son of the Shunammite woman, both those from the Old Testament, the son of the widow of Nain. Uh, from the New Testament. Dorcas, one of my favorite uh, New Testament names. Uh, Eutychus, uh, whose name means lucky, although he falls off a windowsill and dies. is not very lucky. But then he's resuscitated, so he is lucky. Uh, but uh, they're not resurrected. Uh, they're raised from the dead, but they're not resurrected. They're resuscitated, all right? Uh, there's a difference between just coming back from the dead and actually being resurrected. Uh, those uh, mean different things in, uh, entirely. The key difference between a res- resuscitated body and a resurrected body is that a resuscitated body is going to die again. It's going to die again. It's still as mortal as it was before. It's, like, uh, it, it, it's just like someone uh, you know, applies the paddles to you and brings you back to life. Well, you're eventually going to die again. Uh, it might be days or months or weeks or years or decades later, but eventually you will die again. That's just resuscitation. That's what we see with Lazarus. That's what we see with the Shunanite uh, woman's son, and, uh, and on and on we can go. Jesus is the first to actually be resurrected, to receive this resurrected uh, body. And, uh, and so the Bible isn't all that clear. We have a billion questions about, tell me about the resurrected body. Can it fly? Can it jump really far? Is it like Superman? We don't know all of these uh, sorts of things. We do know a few things, though. We do know that there's no sickness or death because those things have, uh, have been uh, destroyed. Uh, interestingly enough, sometimes people can resu- uh, recognize Jesus in his resurrected body, sometimes not but not sure if that has anything to do with the body or just the fact that uh, in God's sovereignty he decided to uh, reveal himself uh, and uh, to disguise himself. And uh, uh, we know in 1 Corinthians 15 that it's called a spiritual body. That doesn't mean that it's immaterial. That doesn't mean spiritual as opposed to physical. In 1 Corinthians 15, whenever it talks about a spiritual body, that adjective means empowered by. So it's empowered by the Spirit as opposed to being empowered by the flesh or something like that. It seems like we still eat. Jesus eats uh, fish and said he would drink of the vine uh, in the kingdom, those kind of things. Jesus could suddenly appear in locked rooms. Don't know if that's something that we'll actually be able to do. It might have just been uh, a, a matter of his, uh, of his deity. After all, Philip, if you remember the story of, uh, of Philip, is out preaching the gospel and all of a sudden he disappears. And, uh, and so it's possible that that has nothing to do with a resurrected body. And so here's what we know. There's no sickness. There's no death. And there's some degree of continuity between your current body and your resurrected body. And there's some degree of discontinuity between your current body and your resurrected body. And beyond that, the Bible really doesn't address uh, any of the other billion questions uh, that we might have. And so Jesus was the first uh, to be resurrected. All the other resuscitations, all the other uh, raisings from the dead that we see in Scripture are kind of like an analogy. They're a picture. They're not the thing itself. They're just a picture of the thing. And so that's the, uh, the first thing to recognize about Jesus being the first fruits. And the second thing to recognize is that if Jesus was the first, there will be second and third and fourth and so forth. And so Jesus as the first fruit forms the basis or the ground for the hope of future resurrection. Many texts are going to explicitly link the resurrection of Christ to the coming eschatological resurrection, the resurrection that's going to come at the end of, uh, of time. Uh, for example, Acts 26, 22 through 23, you have, these, uh, you have this in, uh, in your notes, that he was the first to rise from the dead. 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 1 Corinthians 20 through 22, uh, we read that a minute ago. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus 
and bring us with you into his presence. So N.T. Wright says this, uh, the risen Jesus is both the model for the Christian's future body and the means by which it comes about. I think that's a good statement. The risen Jesus is both the model for the Christian's future body and the means by which it comes about. By model, he means that we can see certain aspects of our resurrected body from looking at his. And by means, he's speaking of the power of Christ's resurrection as being the same power uh, which shall raise us up to glory with him. And so Christ's resurrection purchases for us and assures our own future uh, resurrection. By the way, resurrection, this future resurrection that we're talking about here, is not just something that's for believers. That's something that is also kind of misunderstood in, uh, in a lot of churches, uh, is that the resurrection that the Bible would hold out is the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Everyone is going to be resurrected. Whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, you are going to experience the resurrection. That's not just something that is reserved for, uh, for believers, uh, but whereas uh, believers are resurrected uh, unto joy, unbelievers are resurrected unto judgment. And uh, so Acts 24, 15 says that having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Daniel 12, 2 in your notes there talks about some awakening to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and uh, contempt. John 5, 28, do not marvel at this for an hour, hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So resurrection is not just something that's reserved for believers. Everybody, every single person who has ever lived will experience resurrection. The reason why is our third point uh, for this. The, the third thing that you need to know about resurrection of the five uh, truths that we'll talk about. The resurrection is about the death of death. The resurrection is about the death of death. If you attend most funerals today, you might be tempted to believe that death is sort of some sort of a good and gentle thing. It's like a friend almost. It's doing us a favor for us to uh, die. That's not the biblical peach, uh, uh, picture, though. That's even in uh, some of our songs. Again, all creatures of our God and King says this, And thou most kind and gentle death, waiting to hush our latest breath. But 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is not doing us a favor. Death is our enemy. As John Donne said, he's a poet, he said, death thou shalt die. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 55, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You see this sort of mocking over death because it is our enemy. And so if we understand that death is our enemy, then we understand, we begin to see how resurrection is the defeat of death. So why is there a resurrection of the just and the unjust, of believers and unbelievers? So that death doesn't win. Death itself is our enemy. Imagine that unbelievers aren't resurrected. Imagine that unbelievers aren't resurrected. They just remain in the grave. They just remain in death then death gets its spoils. It might not have won the ultimate war, but it still gets to share in some of the spoils. It gets its millions or billions or however many people are there in, uh, in the grave. Whereas the resurrection of the just and the unjust is God breaking down the walls of death and taking all the spoils of war and completely sacking the city such that death itself is destroyed. So Revelation 20, 13 through 15 and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, death itself will be judged. Death itself is an enemy. Not just sin, not just Satan. Death itself is personified as being an actual enemy, and so it itself is going to be destroyed. It doesn't get to win at all. It doesn't get to remain uh, victorious over any, and so the resurrection is the death of death. Fourth point, the resurrection is an apologetic. It's an apologetic for the historicity of, uh, of Christianity. 
which makes it really important that we see that this is an actual historical event. Sometimes you'll see people who talk about the sort of metaphor of resurrection. But if resurrection is a metaphor, then your salvation is a metaphor as well. Your salvation is only as literal as, uh, as the resurrection. And, uh, and so that's the emphasis of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that the Christian faith completely unravels without an objective historical resurrection. If the resurrection is just a metaphor, so is your salvation. So your salvation is as real and as true and as physical and complete as is the resurrection. What's really interesting is that as a historical event, the resurrection is going to distinguish Christianity from all other religions. Islam is going to stand or fall in the visions of one man in a cave, Muhammad. Did he or did he not actually have visions in that cave? And were those visions actually from Allah or not? It stands or falls in something that is absolutely, uh, completely unverifiable uh, by anybody else. Buddhism, same way. Uh, So Gautama uh, Buddha goes into this sort of trance-like state after fasting for something like uh, 20 days or something. If I were to fast for 20 days, I would probably also have a strange dream. And Buddhism completely stands or falls on the basis of this one man and uh, and his uh, vision. Joseph Smith, Mormonism is going to stand or fall on the basis of one man and his vision. Christianity alone is going to have hundreds of witnesses with an actual objective historical event. Hundreds of witnesses who could be interviewed, and they were interviewed. That's uh, If you read uh, Luke and Acts, you see that's part of what Luke is doing there. Luke himself wasn't an eyewitness to any of these things, but he goes and he interviews dozens upon dozens of people who have seen these sorts of things, and he compiled them all uh, together. And so either Christ is in the grave, in which case why didn't the Romans or the Jews simply produce the body, quell this sort of rebellion? Does it make sense to think that Jesus is still in the grave? Or he's not. And if he's not in the grave, then where is his body? So Romans or Jews stole it. That's one of the most common sort of ideas. That doesn't make any sense. Again, why would they steal a body and not produce it in order to quell this rebellion, which is tearing the empire apart over uh, time? The other idea would be if Romans or Jews didn't steal it, then maybe his followers stole it. They stole it and they just lied about it, which would make really sense if you see the apostles kind of growing in prestige and glory and they all get rich and they get thousands of camels and they get these palatial estates and all of these sorts of things. But no, that's not what we see the apostles get. The apostles get death. They get suffering. They get torture. They get persecution. They get these sorts of things, which are not the kind of things that people would do. At some point, one of them would have cracked and said, you know what, we made the whole thing up. And, uh, and so it doesn't make any sense to think that the Romans or Jews stole it. It doesn't make any sense to think that Jesus' follow, followers stole it. So what you really get is resurrection, as uh, absurd as it might sound to our secular minds, that resurrection actually makes the most logical sense for the historical data. And it also provides a foundation for believing everything else that might sound unbelievable in the Bible. If the dead can be raised, then anything can happen. Anything can happen, which is, by the way, why when I'm talking with someone who really wrestles with the idea, uh, some sort of Old Testament story, uh, the idea of uh, Jonas surviving for three days in the belly of a fish, or the idea of creation, or whatever it might be, I always want to move away from that, and I want to get to the resurrection. I just want to focus on the resurrection. Think about this. If Jesus could really raise from the dead, why are those things implausible? Why are those things absurd or whatever uh, it might be? If you can get your mind and your heart to wrap around the resurrection, then everything else becomes easier over time. So Christianity is going to stand or fall on the resurrection, which is why when you hear some sort of so-called pastor talking to Oprah and saying that even if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this would still be worth it, uh, you need to recognize that person is a false teacher. 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, this is the result. Not, it's all worth it. It says, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's the fourth point, that the resurrection is this apologetic for the historicity of Christianity. And the last point is that resurrection is a multifaceted gem. This is kind of cheating. 
This fifth point is kind of like a dozen subpoints. It's kind of like a junk drawer or a drunk drawer, as uh, Zach said last week. We put all the other theologically significant odds and ends in this one little uh, uh, thing because it doesn't necessarily fit in my arbitrary list of four other points. Uh, just a, a few things to recognize about the resurrection. Uh, and you have at least these passages, I think, in your notes. The first one, that it ensures our regeneration. Being born again is actually explicitly connected not only to our resurrection. I'm sorry, resurrection is connected not only to our uh, resurrection, but resurrection of Christ is also connected to our regeneration, being born again. First Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It also ensures our justification. Romans 4.25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If you don't know uh, what all that entails, go back and listen to our sermon from Romans 4. It ensures our resurrection. We've talked about that. It establishes the basis for our hope. Romans 8, 23 through 25, which will be at in uh, about two months. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so notice not only uh, here in Romans 8, but also the context of suffering and the hope of resurrection. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 5, there is this strong connection between suffering and resurrection. You can suffer now because the resurrection is coming. Resurrection is the remedy that carries us through our current tragedy. So you have to filter all of your suffering through the reality of the resurrection. It establishes the basis of our hope. It establishes the basis of our ethics, of our ethics, our understanding of morality and right and wrong. It's the, uh, what empowers us to godly living, 1 Corinthians 15, 55, uh, 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be, in, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That therefore is flowing right out of everything that we've read in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. Or Romans 6 that we preached last week, uh, that uh, because of the uh, uh, the reality of the resurrection, that we have died to Christ and we've been raised to walk in a newness of life. Uh, it also declares or affirms Christ's testimony of Himself as the eternal and divine Son of God. It demonstrates the inbreaking of the kingdom. We talked about this before, that Jews expected resurrection at the end of ages. What we see in the resurrection, which happens at the middle of time, is that the kingdom has already begun. It's already been inaugurated. There is this already and not yet to the kingdom. It's D-Day. D-Day has already happened. The Third Reich is going to fall. All of God's enemies will ultimately be destroyed. That is the proof. That is the demonstration uh, of it. The kingdom has, been, uh, has broken into time uh, already, and we are awaiting the consummation. So this, again, is really, really, really important. I want to give a couple of notes on the ascension, and then I will invite Zachary up, and we'll do some Q&A. The ascension of Christ, which is tied so closely together with resurrection that I didn't want to spend a, a, an extended period of time talking uh, about it, although we could have. What is the ascension? It's His rising from the earth into heaven 40 days after His resurrection. That's the ascension uh, of Christ. We read about it uh, in a number of places, uh, Matthew, uh, Luke, Acts, a couple of different places where it uh, talks about Jesus ascending up into uh, up into uh, heaven. And what's the significance of that? Well, it, it's uh, a, a few things. One, that Jesus re-receives His glory. That Jesus re-receives His glory. John 17, 5, Now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory I had with You before the world existed. This, I think, is part of what Philippians 2 is talking about, where it talks about Jesus emptying Himself. He doesn't empty Himself of deity. He doesn't cease to be God. He empties himself to some degree of his glory. Uh, and uh, in the, in the uh, resurrection and in the ascension, he receives his glory again. He is uh, exalted with the name that is above every name. We also see in the ascension that, uh, that Jesus sits. It's often called Christ's session uh, for the word for sit. Sit and session are related. Uh, so think about the, uh, like a courtroom scene. And they said, the court is now in session 
What does that mean? That means that the judge is now presiding. So in a sense, that's what Jesus is doing as he sits uh, there, as he is presiding. Uh, and you see this imagery throughout the Scripture. Psalm 110.10, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by His word. By the word of His power, after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Which is really fascinating because Hebrews will talk about how uh, in the Old Testament uh, that uh, the priests were never allowed to sit if they're on duty, they're standing the entire time. It's kind of like uh, if you've ever worked construction or something like that, and your boss walks by and you're sitting, that's a really bad thing, right? Because if you're sitting, you're not working. The idea is Jesus is sitting because why? His work is finished. He doesn't have anything else to do. Now, this is just a metaphor. There's other places in Scripture where you see that Jesus is standing. Um, uh, Acts seven fifty six. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand. Uh, of God. In Revelation 2, it talks about Jesus as walking, and so it doesn't mean that he's physically sitting the entire time. It's a metaphor to express this idea that his work is finished. Unlike these Levitical priests who had to always stand because they had to always work because sin was never actually atoned for, Jesus sits down showing that his work is completely uh, finished. So back to this sort of coronation idea, Jesus kneels in death he arises in victory and glory, and now he sits on his throne and he waits for the consummation of his kingdom when he will rise in judgment. I want to end just by reading this quote by John Calvin that I think is a really helpful pastoral word for what the ascension means for us. It should be on the back of your notes. Thus, since he has gone up there and is in heaven for us, let us note that we need not fear to be in, his, in this world it is true that we are subject to so much misery that our condition is pitiable, but at that we need neither be astonished nor confine our attention to ourselves. Thus we look to our head who is already in heaven and say, although I am weak, there is Jesus Christ who is powerful enough to make me stand upright. Although I am feeble, there is Jesus Christ who is my strength. Although I am full of miseries, Jesus Christ is an immortal glory, and what he has will sometime be given to me and I shall partake of all his benefits." Yes, the devil is called the prince of this world, but what of it? Jesus Christ holds him in check, for he is king of heaven and earth. There are devils above us in the air who make war against us, but what of it? Jesus Christ rules above, having entire control of the battle. Thus, we need not doubt that he gives us the victory. I am here subject to many changes which may cause me to lose courage, but what of it? The Son of Man is my head, who is exempt from all change. I must then take confidence in him. This is how we must look at his ascension, applying the benefit to ourselves.